Our next speaker is Dr. Rebecca Smith. Uh, she is a board-certified uh, in general dermatology and is one of the few in the nation who has an additional board certification in pediatric dermatology. She attended medical school at Baylor College of Medicine, where she graduated with the highest honors and was elected a member of the Alpha Omega Alpha National Medical Honor Society. Following medical school, Dr. Smith completed a pediatric internship at Baylor, then her dermatology residency at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. Dr. Smith's medical practice in Fort Mill, or at Fort Mill Dermatology is located near her home in Fort Mill, South Carolina. With background emphasis on clinical research, she is well published and she has authored and co-authored numerous articles for various peer-reviewed medical journals. Please help me in welcoming Dr. Smith. Thank you. Thanks, Dina. Thank you, Gina, for that nice introduction, and thank you, SDPA, for letting me be here. I am humbled and honored to be on this esteemed faculty. This is an amazing meeting, and kudos to y'all for, for making this happen. So, I know that you know that this is the product theater, and you may be in a product theater if all of the slides you're about to see are from industry. So, yes, they are, and yes, it's a paid pharmaceutical advertisement, but I would not be standing up here in front of you today if I did not use these drugs every single day in my clinic. I prescribe them, I use them, I've used some of them myself, and even on my own children. So, um, what I say, I believe in, and um, I hope that's apparent. And hopefully that what I share with you today will, um, will make some sort of impact and um, make it easier for you to understand steroids and, and um, non-steroidal therapy options, and we'll have some fun, because actually this is not a bad slide deck considering that it's from industry. So um, we're going to talk a lot about inflammatory dermatoses. I know that y'all have done several lectures on these entities this week, and it's going to, we'll, we'll continue to do so. So we'll talk a little bit about atopic dermatitis in babies, and atopic dermatitis in older babies and that are like in effect. Um, atopic dermatitis, even the older ones, it's flexural. How about some seborrheic dermatitis and maybe even some contact dermatitis? So all these inflammatory dermatoses we'll, um, we'll touch on. Because the topical steroid that we're going to talk about today, Cloderm, is FDA approved for all these indications because it can be used on anything that is inflammatory, anything that's steroid responsive. We've got a lot of treatment options out there. We're going to talk about two today, but we've got a lot of steroids out there. So how do we choose? Um, we go to the sample closet, and we're almost overwhelmed by the number of steroids that we've got to choose from. We look at the patient, we look at the diagnosis, and we look at where we're putting it, and we try to make some sort of educated, informed um, estimate or guess of, as to what would be best for that patient. But it's, it's interesting with topical steroids. Um, you've got to kind of understand where they come from, the history of them, and, and uh, the strength of them, and, and, and how they fit into the armamentarium to, to make the best choices for our patients. So hopefully, at the end of the lecture, you'll know how Cloderm is unique. We'll talk a little bit about the history of topical steroids, because the history is very interesting. Um, we'll talk about the unique design of Cloderm. We'll certainly go over some fun clinical trials, and we'll, I'll show you some clinical photos of some before and afters of some successes. So we're talking about Cloderm tonight, it's our, this morning, I should say. Um, the Cloderm um, is clocrotolone pivolate. It is indicated as a broad indication. This is a really old gold standard topical steroid of mid-potency strength. So because it's a gold standard and because it came to market before the FDA made the stringent regulations of age restrictions and whatnot, um, it is not for one disease class state. It's for anything that is steroid responsive, anything that's inflammatory, anything that's red, anything that's itchy, anything that you deem is steroid responsive you can use Cloderm for. It's an upper mid-strength class 4 topical 
topical potency um, steroid. We classify our steroids, as you know, into seven different classes. The seven being over-the-counter hydrocortisone strength. Um, class six would be your desinide kind of class with um, lower potency topicals. Um, class five, kind of your locoids and cutivates of the world. Class four, you've got that good mid-strength. That's the triamcinolones. It's kind of our go-to because we can start there and go down, or we can start there and escalate up. Then you go all the way up to the superpotents, the ultrapotents, the class ones, your clobetazoles and halobetazoles. Um, so this, we're talking about cloderm, so right there in the middle, right where we start, that's almost one of the, the, the again, the staples in our sample closet. Um, with all drugs, we have to talk about important safety information. The topical, uh, this particular topical steroid in clinical trials was found to have some local application site reactions like itching, burning, irritation, dryness, minimal and no systemic side effects were noted in the trials that I'm going to tell you about. Um, Clodum cream is contraindicated in anyone who is allergic to the active itself or any of the base, and we'll talk about how pure this is and how this active is different and why it's so unique and why it's one of my go-tos. And then we'll also talk about the APA, HPA axis suppression. That's one thing that we worry about, especially in pediatric dermatology. We're putting mid to high potency topical steroids on some of these kids, and sometimes for a long period of time. So we always have to keep that in the back of our mind. And I've got a really funny, um, not funny, it's, it's an amusing um, HPA axis suppression study to share with you that they did back in the 70s, back when they can actually do trials in a, in a fun sort of way. There is no age restriction on Cloderm. So I'll read that again. There's no age restriction on Cloderm, so it is not FDA approved in pediatrics, but it's not not FDA approved in pediatrics. You are not restricted because this drug came to market in the late 70s. So when you use your coupons, sometimes when we use coupons for other drugs, if we try to give a coupon to an acne patient and they're under the age of 12, they're not allowed to use the coupon. The beautiful thing about Cloderm, because there is no age restriction, you as a practitioner get to decide, is this a steroid responsive dermatosis? Do I want to use Cloderm? Can I give them the coupon? You give it to them and it's going to work because you you can use this at any age that you want to use it, any, any site. There's no site um, warnings or restrictions, and there's no age restrictions as long as you deem it necessary and you use it safely. So a little bit about history. I love history, and especially with topical steroids, because that's what we do every day as dermatologists. So topical steroids have been around for a long, long time, well, from, from the beginning of man, but they actually were not um, isolated as compounds until the late 1930s. It wasn't until 1948 that the first human was injected with an active steroid. So all those athletes prior to 1948 won on their own merits. After 1948, now they have to be drug tested. In 1952, that was the first time that, that synthetic hydrocortisone was formulated and brought to market. So we've only had topical steroids since 1952, which is, I can't imagine practicing without them. Um, so in 1952, they, they had the backbone of hydrocortisone. And the, the chemist, the uh, medicinal chemist, took that backbone of hydrocortisone and they started manipulating it and they started substituting various molecules and, and, and switching around things. And they, could, they found that they could make it more potent by adding atoms like chlorine atoms and fluorine atoms by halogenating it. They found that they could esterify it. There's different ways they can modify it to make it penetrate better, to make it last longer, to make it work faster, and to increase the strength. So, Clocurtolone was formulated in the, in the early 70s and brought to market in 1977. So Cloderm has been around since 1977, so longer than some of you have been alive in this room. Not me. <laughs> I probably have socks older than 1977, but, um, but yeah, Cloderm has been out for a long, long time, which speaks to its safety. It doesn't have a black box warning. It's never been recalled, and it's been out since 1977. So the medicinal chemists chemist took hydrocortisone. Now, all topical steroids start with that hydrocortisone backbone. They've all got that, that 
fluorocarbon ring. And what they did is they, they added some a chlorine group, they added a fluorine group, and they added a pevylate group. So they increased the penetration just a little bit, the lipophilicity a lot. They increased the strength from the hydrocortisone class 7 up to the class 4. So they made it a mid-potency topical steroid. And they increased the absorption into the epidermal layer with the lipid base. So the first thing those chemists did is they added a halogen, they added two halogen atoms. Now, halogenation, and I know that word because it sounds, um, it, it strikes terror or fear in, in, in some hearts. I think halogenation, just between you and me, has gotten a bad rap. Halogenation, when I was coming along and learning about the strengths of steroids, I was told to be careful, those can be strong, they can increase side effects. Halogenation in and of itself is not a bad thing. The, the chemist found that they could halogenate at different points and get different strengths of steroids. But it depends on where the halogen atom is and what the halogen, a, a halogen atom is as to what strength of steroid. So chloderm is chlorinated at C9. C9 is the most important position for the strength of the steroid. So chlorine is a little bit weaker atom than fluorine, so they put a chlorine at C9. So they made it go from class 7 up to class 4. And then they added a fluorine at C6. So yes, it's, it's a mid-potency topical steroid, but it has more safety features because it's chlorinated at C9. If you look at the same structure, if you had a fluorine atom there at C9, you'd have clobetazole without the pivolate group up there. So you clobetazole is fluorinated at C9, and the halobetazole is double fluorinated at C9 and C6. Um, so it, it's not just the presence of the halogen, it's where they are and what type they are. So this is softly halogenated, if you will. So this, this has strength, yet safety. So the other important thing about cloderm is that pivolate group, this is the only topical steroid that we have that we can write a prescription for that has that pivolate group. So it's clocortolon pivolate. The most important thing about that pivolate group is it's big. It's, it's, it's an ester, and it's esterified at the C21 position. So it's a large ester, it's a very lipophilic ester, so it makes this compound much more lipid soluble. And what it does, because it's so large, is that it's harder for the enzymes to degrade this, so the, the compound stays around longer at the surface of the skin. Since it's lipid soluble, it goes right into the epidermis more quickly, and because it's harder to degrade, it stays at the epidermal level without getting into the dermis as quickly and without the, as much fear for HPA axis suppression. So it increases the safety of the molecule. So you have the strength of the soft halogenation, if you will, and the safety of the pivolate group because it makes it more lipid soluble. Now kind of to drive that home and to show you how lipid soluble that pivolate group makes clocortolone, there was an in vitro study done of all the class fours and five topical steroids that we use, which are that mid-potency strength, and they took the, the parent compound, the pure compound, and looked at it in the lab to see how lipid-soluble that compound is. And when compared to all the other class fours and fives that we use, cloderm, clocortolone pivolate, was the most lipid-soluble. You can look along here on the slide. Triamcinolone was the, the pure parent compound, was the least lipid-soluble. And then fluadrenolide or cordran coming over, desoxymetazone or topocort, um, triamcinolone acetonide, kind of our go-to, is only half as lipid-soluble as the clocortolone pivolate. Um, hydrocortisone 17-butyrate or locoid, then fluticasone or cutivate, then betamethasone 17-valerate or luxeq. So you can see as we go along, the cloderm is the most lipid soluble. That means that when you spread it on the skin surface, it's going to be incorporated into that extracellular lipid milieu that's the, that makes the, border, the mortar of that bricks and mortar model that we talk about with the skin barrier. 
So it goes right into the epidermal layer. It's taken up by the epidermal layer. It's broken down more slowly. So you've got, again, you've got the strength of the halogen with the safety of the lipid solubility, and it's not as absorbed. So you see fewer local side effects and fewer systemic side effects. The other beautiful thing about Cloderm is that it is in the allergenicity group C. We take all of our topical steroids in dermatology and classify them into different groups based on how allergenic they are. We have group A, B, C, D1, and D2. A and D2 cross react a lot. Some of the things in B will cross react with D2 as well. The purest group of all of those is group C, right there in the middle. There are only two topicals in group C. You've got Cloderm, Clocortolone pivolate, and desoxymetazone. So we've only got two choices, and that one group that doesn't cross-react with anybody, and that one group that is the most pure. So if you have a patient who is more likely to have an allergy, has a known allergy, or you've patch tested them and you know they have an allergy to group A or group D2 or maybe even group D1, then you can use group C. So this is another reason why you might want to choose Cloderm over some of the other topicals in your cabinet when you're going to reach for it. Because sometimes our patients are, we know they have a steroid responsive dermatosis and we put some steroids on them and they seemingly get worse. Well, sometimes it's because they're allergic to the steroid that we've put on them. So this is, is a good option to just keep in the back of your mind. So it, it's got the strength, it's got the lipid solubility, and it's got the low allergenicity potential. Allergenicity potential. And yet again, another attribute of Cloderm is the lack of um, long ingredient list. There are very few ingredients in Cloderm cream. There are only eight ingredients other than water and the active, and three of those eight ingredients are emollients, mineral oil, white petrolatum, and sterile alcohol. Those three things are the three things that we usually find in ointments. So I like to think of this as a croitment. It's got the elegance of a cream that our patients like and want to use, and they, they, it's the spreadability and the, the patient friendly, friendliness, but it's got the, the efficacy of the ointment, which is what we've learned and what we know works better in some of these disease states. So it's got three different emollients, it's, it's got a highly lipid-soluble active, and very few other active ingredients, and it is lanolin-free, propylene glycol-free, and fragrance-free. So again, for any of your potentially allergic patients, for somebody who's sensitive to other things, for the strength, the efficacy, and now for the elegance of a cream that's really acting like an ointment, we've got Cloderm. So let's look at some clinical studies. Now, bear in mind that this drug came to market in 1977. So these studies were done to bring it to market in 1977. So some of them are different than what we do today. Actually, all of these studies are different than what we do today. So we'll talk about different disease states because this is FDA approved in all inflammatory diseases. We'll start with atopic dermatitis and eczema because that's probably the most common thing that we put steroids on. But all inflammatory dermatoses, including psoriasis and contact dermatitis, et cetera. We'll break it down to the pediatric patients. We'll look at an HPA axis suppression study, which is my favorite study to present. And then we'll look at long-term use because we all need steroids sometimes long-term in these patients. And it, it's nice to know that we've got um, a safe alternative or something that we can use safely and that we've got long-term studies for. So the first study we're gonna go over is the one for eczema, atopic patients. Again, early 70s, they had over 200 patients in two arms. They had them apply the topical TID. And that's evidently what they did back in the 70s because all the studies, that, all the old um, topical steroid studies that you read back in the 70s were, they, they applied the topical TID. We now, almost everybody does it BID. And probably our patients are doing it once a day, <laughs> to be quite honest with you. But they asked them to do it TID in the studies. 
They had different endpoints back then. They called them different things. They called it the physician's rating of improvement instead of the investigator global analysis. And they called it the index of observed clinical symptomatology. So that's a mouthful. That just means that they got better. They were less itchy, less red. So the clinical results with this study and the, the eczema atopic patients showed that as early as day four, and at both endpoints, week one and week two of the trial, there was a statistically significant difference in the symptomatology and that physician's global rating. They walked in, gestalted the patient, and said, wow, you're clear or almost clear. So I'm, I, I'm extrapolating here because that's not the exact verbiage that they used, but it was the physician, physician's global rating. So as early as day four, 41% 41, 41 of the patients had clearance of disease or satisfactory results is how they, um, the verbiage that they used. By day seven, 56%, and by day 14, almost 70% of the patients had satisfactory results. Now, if you look at the yellow bar, that's the placebo bar, that's the base of the medicine. That may look a little high to you, but that speaks volumes for the base. That base has mineral oil, petrolatum, and sterile alcohol, and it's less allergenic than some of the other bases that we've got out there. So the base itself is doing a lot. So if we just moisturize these patients, half of them are gonna get better anyway. Add a little dab of steroid on there, and, and we've got a winner. So adverse events in this trial were very few. Most of the adverse events were local application site reactions. There were actually fewer in the cloderm group than there were in the placebo group. No systemic side effects were noted in the entire trial. And if you look at all the trials that were done, there were almost 600 patients. And if you look at all the adverse events throughout all the trials that were done, again, very few. They were topical, they're itching, burning, stinging, um, and mild resolved and no systemic events um, in any of the trials. Now, looking beyond eczema into other inflammatory dermatoses, and again, bearing in mind that we're using, this is a class four, a good mid-potency topical steroid, they looked at it in psoriasis, and they looked at it in contact dermatitis. So we're gonna focus just on that yellow box in the middle of the screen. In psoriasis, and again, not in the 1970s, there were not the, the, the data, the, so the study is not really structured. Um, but as you imagine, when you walk into the room with a psoriasis patient and then you go to the sample closet, we're usually grabbing for class one topical steroids. We're usually putting those patients on ultra-potent topical steroids. They used a class four on the topical steroid on the psoriasis patients, and 44% of them had satisfactory results. I think that's actually pretty good for psoriasis, because psoriasis is a hard disease to treat, especially with a class four. So that's, I, I think that's a positive positive result. In contact dermatitis, about what we expected, 87% of the patients had a satisfactory result. And when you break it down to the kids, same disease states, eczema, psoriasis, contact dermatitis, the kids had very, um, very good, good to excellent results. Um, almost 80% of the kids with eczema and atopic dermatitis had satisfactory results. Um, half in psoriasis, and again, that's a, a terrible disease state to treat too, so I would be happy with that number with a mid-potency topical steroid. And the one of one contact dermatitis patient got completely better, so that's 100% success rate right there. That's how you have a good study, is you only have one patient. <laughs> um, no adverse events in any of the pediatric trials, which is very important because, again, that's the age that we worry about the most with HPA axis suppression. We worry about side, local side effects. We worry about systemic side effects. Um, so no side effects, actually, in the trial itself. In the open-label extension, five patients reported dryness. So um, very, very good results. Now, here's my favorite study because, again, it was done in the late 70s. It's an HPA axis suppression study. Anytime you bring a steroid to market, the FDA requires that you, um, that, that the company do a study that shows the, the safety and, um, a, and potential adrenal suppression of the drug. So back in the 70s, they found 10 healthy male subjects. 
Let me translate that. They, they found 10 hungry medical students that needed money. <laughs> and they paid them. I hope they paid them a lot of money because what they did for these poor guys is they put them in plastic sweatsuits for 12 hours a day for 21 days. That is three weeks, 12 hours a day in a plastic sweatsuit. But before they put on that plastic sweatsuit, they had to put on 60 grams of Clodrum cream all over their body and then put on that plastic sweatsuit. 12, 12 hours, three weeks. Um, I don't know who signed up, but I hope they paid them well. <laughs> so they looked at the clinical um, and lab, they looked clinically at their skin and they looked at their lab values before for five days during and after, and they looked at both urine and blood. And what they found was that the guys probably didn't like the plastic sweatsuits, but they had no urinary or um, blood abnormalities as far as HPA axis suppression. No adrenal suppression was seen in any of those subjects. 60 grams of cream daily under a plastic sweatsuit occlusion. So you can just imagine that that's a lot of drug and that's a lot of plastic occlusion and we don't do things like that anymore. And the fact that there was none is, is huge, I think. Six subjects had some lab abnormalities that they thought that they were probably sweating a little too much in those plastic sweatsuits, and I can imagine that they were sweating a lot in those plastic suits. Um, one had mild folliculitis of the skin, but only one? If I wore a plastic sweatsuit for 12 hours a day for three weeks, I'd have folliculitis, I betcha. Um, four had systemic side effects. Four of them um, described side effects of mild heartburn, mild nausea, mild indigestion, and tiredness. And they attributed that to those plastic sweatsuits, which is, um, I'm surprised that only four of them had those symptoms. So, um, so be that as it may, the take home message from this is that you can use huge amounts of clodrum cream under occlusion for three weeks at a time and still not see HPA axis suppression in this particular clinical trial. So it made me feel a whole lot better looking at the strength of the steroid being class four, the lipophilic effects, and the fact that it spreads so well. You can even include it and not get HPA axis suppression in, an adult, in a healthy adult male population. So long-term use, because here's where the, kind of the, the rubber meets the road, is we've got a lot of patients with a lot of chronic inflammatory diseases. So what do we go to in our cabinet and give them? We don't really want to give them a halogenated steroid that's class one. We might want to give them a halogenated, a softly halogenated um, topical steroid that's class four, a medium potency. I mean, we, we all cut our teeth and trained on triamcinolone. This is just like triamcinolone. Um, so long-term study, they found people with inflammatory chronic diseases. They gave them free reign, gave them all clodium they wanted to use for seven months. They said, have at it, use it when you need it, don't use it when you don't need it, keep a diary, let us know. It, it worked out for the, for the patients that they used it for an average of 16 weeks. So four months of those seven, the patients were applying topical steroids. They looked at the adverse events over time and they did not see any systemic, any cumulative adverse events. Um, one person had some mild dryness throughout the entire seven months. And a couple of patients had some lab abnormalities that were deemed not study drug related. So. You can use it safely, intermittently, over long periods of time per the study. So clinically, how do we make this fit? Where do we reach for Clodarm? When do we reach for Clodarm? Typical adult atopic patient comes in in a flare. She's got a flare on her arm. She's got a flare on her armpit. She's got a flare on her face. She's got a flare on her eyelids. So they gave her Clodarm cream. They allowed her to apply it to all of those areas twice a day, and they saw her back in a week. She had an itching of 10 out of 10. She was in the middle of a fairly severe flare for her. At day seven, you can see some fairly dramatic results. She's clear. And seven days on her arm and in her, arm, her axilla, which is, I think, one of the hardest places that we have to treat. And again, I've got to say that I don't usually think of a class four for that area, 
I usually do a lower potency topical steroid there, but we've got a lipophilic drug that's softly halogenated, and we've got some good, good data about how safe this drug is. And as long as we use it judiciously on those areas, she was allowed to use it on our eyelids, and she was allowed to use it on her face. So within seven days, and I think that would be my restriction, as I'd, I'd see him back in seven days and stop it and wean them to some non-steroidals. But yeah, you, can, you, you have, again, you, you are a practitioner, and with this particular drug, you're not restricted. Any age, any body surf, surface area, any site that you deem necessary with the topical steroids. And that her itching went down to a two out of 10 in seven days. So it works quickly, it works effectively. So kind of to recap Cloderm, Clocortolone pivolate is very unique and then it's got the chlorine at C9, it's got the fluorine at C6, it's got that large pivolate group up at C21, so it's a sterified. So it's lipophilic, so it's strong, it's safe, it's effective, it's lipophilic. Because it's lipophilic, it works faster. There's like a depot action there because it's, it hangs out in the skin surface and doesn't go down to the dermis as quickly. So class four potency right there in the middle, no age restriction. So that means that our patients can get better because we can prescribe what we want to prescribe. So our, really our goal here is to get our patients better quickly and to have no phone calls back at the office. We love that. So th this coupon is amazing. I have gotten no, no phone calls back from this particular one. If we have patients that we're more worried about allergies, this is a great choice because it's group allergenicity C. It's got few uh, ingredients in the base. It's very emollient. You got your mineral oil, your petrolatum, and your sterile alcohol. And we got options. Right now it just comes in this cream that's a creamment. Um, but we've got different treatment options. We've got big tubes, little tubes, and we got two pumps. For those patients that we see that are steroid phobic, which often they are, the pumps are nice because it's a meter dose. And you can say, oh, you can just use one pump or two pumps or three pumps. You can tell them how many pumps to, for which body surface area and, and give them permission to use this topical steroid and give them permission to use it for a week or two and then see them back early and, and, and have them be amazed at how well that they respond to this. But you can, for, for patients who you think might overuse it, the pump's nice too, because then you can, it, it's more of a meter dose. It's, it's harder to sit there and pump out the whole thing as, as opposed to the tube where they can squirt it out for large body surface areas. Um, but I like having options. So you don't have to remember the sizes of the tube. You can write large tube, small tube, large pump, small pump. So, um, so, so don't let that throw you. So now let's change gears a little bit. Let's talk about seborrheic dermatitis. So still an inflammatory dose diagnosis and still steroid responsive. But we don't want to use a topical steroid for these patients long term because generally we're talking about their face. Um, we do see seborrheic dermatitis obviously in scalp and folds and other, other chest and other body surface areas. Um, but for long term, Promiseb is a great option because it's non-steroidal. And that is a B, it says Promiseb, and it's not an H, it actually should connect there. So it's Promiseb. So it's Promiseb's drug for seborrheic dermatitis. So Promiseb cream is non-steroidal, and we've got some fun studies to go over because we can compare Promiseb directly to Desonide. Because Desonide, usually in the face, our go-to would be a class six um, in general. So if you're gonna use a topical steroid on the face, especially for something like seborrheic dermatitis, um, generally we're reaching in our sample closets and giving them something in that Desonide group. So their head-to-head -head study with something that we already use and know and we know how it works. Um, we'll look at the anti-inflammatory properties of Promiseb, as well as some studies about the antifungal effects. Um, we will look at some safety studies. The patients loved it. They tolerated it well. Um, it's, a, it's a nice, elegant base. The men like it because it rubs in, doesn't leave the face sticky or greasy. And the thought here, and the whole reason why this came to market, is because this was kind of a, an unmet need in dermatology. We have a lot of patients with seborrheic dermatitis, and we don't want to leave them on topical steroids. They know topical steroids work, and they know they work fast. 
But we don't want to get into that quagmire where they use topical steroids and it goes away and then there's a rebound effect and they use more and it goes away but then it, there's another rebound effect because they may be overusing the topical steroids in the long run. So a lot of us were using a topical steroid at first, getting them clear, and then using an antifungal long term. And when they flared, going back to the topical steroid, um, this, is a, this is a whole different approach because we've got now a topical that's anti-inflammatory and antifungal all in the same formulation. So I like to think of this as lotrazone light. <laughs> I don't like lotrazone and I don't think that there's a need for lotrazone in the world because um, you really need to know what you're treating, but we know what we're treating. We, we needed an anti-inflammatory, antifungal all in the same prep. So here we have it. So we'll look at that study, that's Promiseb versus Desonide, and we'll also look at some studies of the antifungal activity both in humans and in guinea pigs. So first was the head-to-head -head with desonide. And again, desonide was chosen just because that's what we use. So we needed to say, okay, we got this new cream. Let, let's pit it against something that we use and, um, and understand. Um, it was a multicenter trial. It was a, a four-week trial. They were seen back at two weeks. And if they were clear at two weeks, they were asked to stop their drug, and they were reevaluated at four weeks. So the way they designed this is they found 77 adults with facial subderm, because they just treated the face in this particular study, split them into two arms, half promiseb, half desonide. They applied the medication twice daily. They were seen back at two weeks. If they were clear, they stopped their medicine and they were seen back at four weeks. If they weren't clear, they continued on their medication until the four-week endpoint and they were reevaluated. So two endpoints. Demographics were probably what we see in the clinic every day. Um, to, mostly male, so about um, three-quarters male, a, a third female. Um, mostly white, but there was a good mix of um, blacks and Hispanics in here. It was a very young age population. The mean age was 52. <laughs> so, um, and actually, that's what we see with subarachnoid dermatitis. We see a flare in the little, little ones. We see cradle cap. We see lots of subderm when you're really, really little. We see another blip around puberty. And then we see another blip kind of in the mean age of 52. So that's um, fair, fairly typical of what we see. The results of the trial were very interesting and in what we see in our clinics on a daily basis. Um, the people, the, 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 the graph shows in green the Promiseb arm and in yellow the Desonide arm. So you can see both of these creams worked equally well, equally effective down to two weeks. There was no statistical difference between the Promiseb and the Desonide. Yes, you might look and say, yeah, the Desonide worked a little bit faster, but we're talking about the turtle and the hair here. Um, so they both were good at two weeks. If you were clear or almost clear at two weeks, you were asked to stop your medicine. Then you were asked to come back at four weeks. The yellow line goes back up. That's because if you stop a steroid at two weeks and you're not treated for another two weeks and you come back at four weeks, some of those patients were flaring. So they were having that steroid rebound effect. The ones that stopped Promiseb at two weeks, because it's anti-inflammatory, antifungal, and no steroid involved, most of those were still clear at the, the four-week endpoint. Looking at erythema, looking between a topical steroid and Promiseb, because Promiseb is anti-inflammatory, the erythema scores went down statistically significantly as early as two weeks and out to um, four weeks. So it worked equally as well as a class six topical steroid, and pruritus scores were the same. They followed them, so, so the statistically significantly better at two and four weeks. And this is the take-home message. This is durability of response with Promiseb. So right out of the gate, the guys that got the Promiseb if they were clear at two weeks, we're talking about the green bar here, if they were clear at two weeks, 71% of those who were clear at two weeks were still clear at four weeks. So there was durability of response even without treatment in the Promisev arm. Now if you were in the Desonide arm and you were clear at two weeks, only 14% of those patients were still clear at four weeks. So they had that rebound effect. 
So if you want a, a sustained, durable response, again, that turtle in the hair, we're all going for the finish line, but we want to get there safely and effectively, and we don't want our patients to flare. This might be a good option just from the get-go to start with, so we don't see that rebound effect with steroids. Because if you give them steroids, they might want steroids, and they might overuse their steroids, because they, they're, they're, they're going to figure out right quick in a hurry the difference. Um, adverse events with Promoseb cream, again, were very few topical application site reactions in one patient. There were two serious AEs. One patient got pregnant in the trial, which is a serious AE, and dropped out of the trial, was exited from the trial. And one patient had facial trauma due to a mugging. So that's very, I mean, it's dangerous to be in a clinical trial. But you have to report everything. So that was considered a serious AE because they ended up in the hospital for probably laceration. Um, so study conclusions were that Promiseb worked equally well to desinide in the clinical trial for facial seborrheic dermatitis. Um, so equal results at two weeks, equal results at four weeks. And there was more of a durability of response. There was con con continued clearance in the Promiseb arm versus the steroid arm. There was demonstrated anti-inflammatory activity in both, but specifically for Promiseb, there was less erythema and less itching as early as two weeks. So it de definitely decreased the, the redness and the itching. Now let's look at some fun studies in adults and, and normal human volunteers. And I love to point out the fact that this says normal human volunteers. This is a study that was done by Leon Kirstick. You all know him because he just spoke to you here at this meeting. Um, Leon is from Louisville, Kentucky. And this, this study was normal human volunteers. And the most difficult thing for Leon to do was to find 10 normal humans in Louisville, Kentucky. <laughs> he found them. So 10 normal humans, just like everybody in this room, because we're all normal. Um, they did not have tinea versicolor. That's really what that, was, that meant. So they could not have tinea versicolor on their chest. They had to be normal. And what he did is he tape stripped both sides of the chest. And on one side, he left it untreated. On the other side, he treated with a pea-sized drop of Promiseb cream um, twice a day for seven days. And he looked at malassezia counts before and after. It was very interesting because of all us normal people in this room, if we tape stripped everybody, 70% of us would grow malassezia just because it's commensal, it's everywhere. We all have it, um, or 70% of us have it. Um, and they, he, he just looked at the, basically the kill rate of the treated side. What he found was that the treated side, P-size dropped twice a day for seven days, 94% reduction in malassezia counts. The untreated side had a 49% reduction. You might go, hmm, why did the untreated side get treated too? They were doing it twice a day. They were just doing it on half the chest. So I don't know, maybe it felt so good they were rubbing it over here. They rubbed some over there. I don't know. Um, maybe if they were larger breasted than I am, when they slept at night, they put it over here and it got over there. I don't know. Um, but who knows? They're 49% on this side. And there were small colony counts in some of these. So they could have been like one colony to no colonies. And that was a reduction. Um, there was a reduction in the untreated side. But the take-home message was there's 94% reduction in malassezia. And that's in just seven days, twice a day. So that was a very good pilot study. It was not an efficacy study. It was just looking at the colony count reduction. So then they went to home office and they got some guinea pig volunteers. So they were looking at guinea pig volunteers to see if they can infect these poor little guinea pigs and how fast Promiseb would make their malassezia infections go away. Because to my knowledge, I don't treat many guinea pigs, but I don't see much tinea versicolor in guinea pigs. I don't know if the, the vets do or not, but we'll have to ask them. So they got some guinea pig volunteers, and they got lots of guinea pigs. And what they did is they took one poor group, and they infected them just to make sure that they can infect them. They shaved their bellies, and they put this tincture of um, malassezia fur, fur on their bellies, and they made sure that over seven days of applying this, that they could get an infection of malassezia there. 
And they did. They proved that they could do that in the control group. Then they had an infected control group that they just infected, and they did it every day for seven days, and then they didn't treat them for three days, and they looked at them at the end of the trial. And then in group three, they infected the little guinea pigs then day, for seven days, and then once a day for day eight, nine, and ten, they got one application of cycloprox olamine. That's better known as Loprox cream in our world. So they put Loprox cream on once a day for three days. Then they sacrificed the poor little guinea pigs, did um, colony counts and um, skin um, culture samples, and they looked at the, the colony counts at the end, and then did the exact same thing with Promacin. Eight guinea pigs, infected them for seven days, and then three applications once a day for three days with Promacev. And very interestingly, 100% kill rate in both arms with three applications of cycloprox and three applications of Promacev. So Promacev works equally well as Loprox in this particular application. So the kill rate is, um, is sub sub substantial for the antifungal activity. So. The malassezia yeasts were um, significantly reduced in the normal human volunteers that Leon Kursik found in um, Louisville, Kentucky, and eradicated after only three applications using, cyclo using the Promacem, which um, has an active ingredient of peroctone olamine, so very close to cycloperoxolamine. So in your mind, you can kind of extrapolate the fact that it worked in three applications because it's very similar, similar chemical base. So these are just some before and afters, um, baseline and week one. And again, this is very, very early in the trial. It was a four-week trial. So as early as week one, this guy cleared. And then baseline in week one. And the one thing that I would point out on this slide is that if you have somebody with new onset or really bad seborrheic dermatitis, and it's their first time, and it's, it looks really, really bad, and it's hard to treat, get an HIV. So the proposed use of the Promiseb cream is theoretically, this could, this could replace two prescriptions in our clinics. Instead of those patients coming in and getting that topical steroid, like sometimes we would do, and then segueing them over to an antifungal, we can just give them, if they're mild, we can just give them one prescription. They can start Promacept from the get-go. They can stop it when they get better. And when they flare again with their seborrheic dermatitis, they can start it back. But they'll have longer remissions because there's longer durability of response. Now, if they're moderate, we might want to add Promacept and a little topical steroid from the get-go and then drop the topical steroid when they get better, and then sustain them with Promiseb rather than just an antifungal, because this has more anti-inflammatory effects. So this could, again, replace two prescriptions with one. So kind of the take-home message for Promiseb cream is that it's safe and effective on the face, um, low instances of AEs. It has very good anti-inflammatory properties, and the base of Promiseb, if you've ever felt it, is a nice creamy base. There's lots of good ingredients in there that are more on the natural side of things. Because you know we all have those patients that come in and say, Doc, you fix me, but don't give me a steroid. You're like, God, I, I could fix you, but I, I need to give you a steroid. Well, this is a non-steroidal option. So and you can tell the patients that want something natural. Well, this has some natural ingredients in the base. It's got glyceratinic acid, which is a derivative of licorice. So that's in some of the other topicals that we use for atopic dermatitis. So glyceratinic acid is a natural anti-inflammatory agent. Topically, it also has basabalol and elantuin, so a chamomile extract and a comfrey extract. So it's got some, some botanical extracts in there. It's got shea butter, butyrosporum parkii. So it's got the shea butter in there that gives it some of that nice moisturizing effect and that nice base and that's positive connotations to the patients. And it's also got vetus vinifera, which is a, a grapevine extract. So it's got lots of good natural ingredients that are anti-inflammatory. So that's where its anti-inflammatory effect is coming from. And there is a warning on the box, and I will tell you about the little nut allergy warning. 
You know when you pick up a package of potato chips now and down at the bottom it says it was packaged in a plant that also packages or also processes nuts and soy and fish and wheat and all of those other things? It's now there's an FDA rule that anything that has shea butter in it has to have that nut allergy warning. Shea butter is a purified derivative, a purified oil of the marking nut tree or the ginkgo biloba tree or the butyrosparum parkii tree. So it's a purified oil from that. There's no protein in shea butter, if it's purified shea butter. So there's no protein. There has never been a report back to the FDA that shea butter has caused any sort of allergic response in tree nut allergic patients. So we're talking only tree nut allergic patients here. If they're peanut allergic, that's a legume, totally different allergy. So if you have a peanut allergic patient, absolutely you'd sell them without a doubt. It's totally safe. Even if you have a tree nut allergic patient, you can use this safely because it's purified shea butter. You just have to warn them up front because if they read that allergy heading thing, they'll, it'll generate a phone call back to your MAs and they will not be happy. So yeah, tell them about that. So it's natural anti-inflammatory effects. And again, the antifungal, one of the major antifungals in this preparation is peroctone olamine. So again, very close to cycloperoxolamine. Um, so very similar fun fungicidal activity, as you could see in the studies. Um, excellent safety profile. The patients love it. They tolerate it well. Um, and they feel safer about putting it on their face long term for these typical applications. And good, co good cosmetic acceptability, because it rubs in and doesn't, again, doesn't leave that sticky, greasy, shiny residue. So this may, it may be two for one, or one size fits all, if you, if you will. So our treatment options that we have gone over, Cloderm, you've got your, your softly halogenated, elegant, strong, croitment that's lipophilic, that has that depot action in the epidermis, that's a class four topical steroid, so it can be, a, a, in your mind, kind of be one of those go-to products for anybody who's allergic, anybody who has any sort of um, inflammatory disease where you really need an ointment, but the patient prefers a cream, um, really for a wide variety of applications, because you're not restricted on age, you're not restricted on body site, um, and you, you use it as you would normally use a class four topical steroid. And then we have this wonderful non-steroidal option for our seborrheic dermatitis patients, Promised. Thank you. Thank you for thank you for attention and happy Veterans Day. <laughs> yes, question. What is, what is the pregnancy category for um, Promiseb, and what's the recommendation for use during pregnancy and breastfeeding? You know, what, the pregnancy category for all topical steroids, to my knowledge, is a pregnancy category C. So yes, I think that's a class as for all topical steroids. But I had asked about Promiseb. Yeah. Oh, well, Promiseb. I'm sorry, I thought you said Cloderm. Promiseb is a medical device. Um, because it's a medical device, they, there is no pregnancy category on Promiseb. Um, it's a totally different classification, so there's not an age restriction. There's not a, a pregnancy category. Um, so you can use it if you deem it necessary. It's almost like putting Loprox on them if they have tinea um, while they're pregnant. So you have to use your own clinical judgment. And if the benefits outweigh the risk, you can use it in pregnancy. Um, so yes, the, the FDA has not put a pregnancy category on Promiseb. Thank you for clarifying that. Yes. Hi, good morning. Good morning. I, um, I just have a comment. I happen to be a normal person from Kentucky. It's, it's quite offensive. There are actually 1.2 million people in Louisville. I'm sure he did not have difficulty in finding 10 normal people from Louisville. I'm, I, I, that was just a joke. It's I'm quite sorry. all right. I, I'm sorry. I'm no sorry one else would make an offensive comment about persons of color, you know, gay orientation. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. That was totally it's just the fourth comment during this conference, and we make jokes about it. But come on. I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. I did not mean to offend you. Certainly. I, yeah, please accept my my sincere apologies. 
I was just trying to keep it light and keep it humorous to keep you awake. I'm sorry. And Louisville, Kentucky is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful city. And yeah, lots of beautiful people there, lots of normal people there. I was just, Leon likes to make his jokes about where he's from, so I had a I'm very sorry. I had a question. Yes. Um, I'm curious about, um, I know that it's not directly connected to um, uh, perioral dermatitis, but it occurs to me that it's, since it's anti-inflammatory, would it be, has it been used off-label, Promiseb I'm talking about? I personally have used Especially it off Especially with children. Absolutely. I'm, I like the way you think. Um, yes, anything that's inflammatory, anywhere that you would want an anti-inflammatory that you want, don't want the steroid, yes, you're, you're right on track. Um, anything that's anti, any, anywhere that you would want to use an anti-inflammatory. I've used it for intertrigo, I've used it for perioral dermatitis, I've used it for perlesh, I've used it for diaper dermatitis, I've used it for any application where I want that anti-inflammatory effect. Basically anywhere the, the family practice doctors would use Lotrazone, I've also tried it. So, so yes, I, it, it's, and you know there's not a home run with perioral dermatitis, that's a very difficult condition to treat. So yes, I, I've tried it and I've gotten some variable results. I've gotten some good results and some fantastic results and I've gotten some middling to not so, not so good results. So. You know what, with perioral dermatitis, if you get them early and treat them early and aggressively, you can get them clear more quickly. Um, but if they've had perioral dermatitis for two, three months before they come into the clinic to see us, it, it's the, the clearance is a little bit longer, as just with any other perioral dermatitis patient. So, yeah, so the faster you treat, the better they respond. So, and it kind of depends on when they show up to us. So that's not always something that we can control. Yes, question here. Yeah, um, kind of on those same lines, but uh, kind of a concomitant uh, rosacea, sebderm patient. Have you seen improvements in the rosacea when you're, uh, or have you used it? Absolutely, and thank you for that question. You know, one of my favorite places to use this, we see, we see a lot of sebderm rosacea overlap. And I think a lot of our patients have both diseases concomitantly. And one may be more at one time, and one may be more at the, an, another stage or, or um, season or whatnot. So absolutely, I see a decrease because it's anti-inflammatory. I see a decrease in the anti-inflammatory, the in inflammation of rosacea. Um, I think it helps the subderm more and faster. And I think it helps the subderm. I think I see the difference in subderm a little bit faster than I see it in rosacea, just because of the nature of the disease process. But also those little teenagers that come in and they got that subderm acne overlap, and you're not really sure if it's subderm or acne, that's also a good application for this. Because um, it's more subdermy than it is acne, but they've got both going on. I'll use it there because they also get that anti-inflammatory effect for their, their early inflammatory acne papules. So yes, um, I, I use it a lot for that, that overlap syndrome. So yes, great questions on Premisim. And y'all are definitely thinking outside the box. So kudos to y'all, and thank you. Thank you again.